Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. In the market for global equity volatility, few investors have the magnitude of experience of David Rogers. Starting at Goldman Sachs in 1982, Dave was evaluating option strategies in the nascent period of the U.S. derivatives market. His experience through the 87 crash, as well as his time in Asia in the early 1990s, were formative in establishing a risk management philosophy that has proven critical during the many episodes of market turbulence of the past two decades. Our conversation around the LTCM unwind in 1998 and its exposure to short equity volatility illustrates the importance that Dave puts on patience and position sizing. Founding JD Capital Management in the aftermath of the tech bubble, Dave has managed complex option exposures from both the long and short side through periods of high and low volatility. Our discussion considers correlation dislocations during the great financial crisis, the impact that structured products can have on volatility surfaces, and the changing regulatory landscape and resulting implications for risk intermediation. We finish by contextualizing the 2017 low vol tail event as Dave shares some of his thoughts on the recent bout of equity vol and what to expect next. Please enjoy my conversation with David Rogers. Dave, welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Great to do it. Excellent. Well, we've known each other for, for quite some time, and it's a, a real pleasure to have an opportunity to uh, bring my podcast equipment to you, to your office, and sit down and, and really do some retrospective on cycles of volatility. You fought a lot of market wars over the years. Why don't you start with your beginnings at, at Goldman Sachs, and then you know we'll kind of move through to uh, some of the prominent big risk-off events. But tell us how you got started in the business. Right. So I was hired at Goldman in 1982. And Goldman had moved a guy from the convertible bond group into the options and futures area. It was We didn't really know what to call it then because all these things were very new. And I was the first person that he hired. So that, that two-person team, Bob Granofsky and I, traded every new option and future that was introduced and it was almost exclusively just trading for Goldman Sachs as principal. Occasionally, there would be a client who would want to get some expertise, but it was primarily us just trading all these new products as they came along, S&P futures, value line futures, OEX options, et cetera. And that continued through the first four or five years of my career from 82 to 87. In 87, when the crash came along, I was trading options on the OEX, the value line futures. So it had become a a relatively, I wouldn't say efficient market, but it was a more developed market by then. So that's what I was doing in the crash was was trading all of these futures, index arbitrage, uh, index options, as I said, primarily for Goldman as principal. So it's got to, goes back a ways, obviously, but it's got to be a pretty formative early experience, just given the magnitude of what happened in October 87. What can you say about the options market in the period going into October 87? There wasn't really a VIX back then, but there were metrics to look at option prices. Give, give us some, some color and commentary on the period leading into it. So I, I think the, the most one of the most interesting things about that whole event is that it really introduced skew to the world. No one really understood option pricing. There was a model, of course, Black-Scholes and and other models, but no one really understood how they were fully being applied or how you could apply them. And no one really understood what what the concept of using different volatilities for different strikes or for different maturities, for that matter, really meant and how to do it and, and you know what that implied, no pun intended. The crash really, really solidified in people's minds, okay, markets crash down and usually march up. So the, the concept of skew was really kind of brought into the entire index option market and the entire market by the crash in 1987. And so one, one of the things going into the the crash is to sort of step back and you examine the different ingredients, so to speak. 
perhaps some of it was rates were rising pretty fast. There was a little bit of an inflation scare. Some people attribute uh, some tax law changes around making mergers less easy to accomplish. But there was this portfolio insurance product that had, I think by all counts, gotten a lot of take up among corporate America. What was the sort of driving rationale for the the usage of this product? What was it trying to accomplish? And as you sort of think back or just think back to that day or the period leading into it, how much attribution do you give to to that product? There were a lot of a lot of study and a lot of thought gone into what was the cause of the crash and then obviously subsequently how to deal with or try and prevent it. Certainly, I think portfolio insurance was at the heart of it. There may have been other other kind of kickoffs or other catalysts for the start of it, but there's no question but that portfolio insurance exacerbated the entire move, not only in that de- day, but in you know subsequent days around and, and right after that. It's just, you know, to put it in pretty simple terms, it's just stop losses gone crazy. Right. And and in a large institutional sense, that's what it was. People felt that they could own more equities because this this process of delevering and and portfolio insurance as a whole was going to protect them on the way down, and you know it didn't quite work the way right. people hoped or thought it might work. And you know we have different versions of this, and with different names and different different flavors of it have existed and. And still exists today. There's uh, among the simplifying characteristics of Black Shoals. You know, I always like to say some of them matter a lot. Some of them matter, but don't matter too much. You know, dividend yields being constant, we can get away with things like borrowing and lending rates. But one of the basic premises of almost everything that you study in financial economics is, uh, you know, markets are infinitely deep. <laughs> And so you sort of write that one off as, yeah, sure, you can always trade. But it seems like this portfolio insurance product, like you said, the the stop loss uh, just was so overwhelming in terms of what it tried to push through to the markets. And then maybe a sense of panic that resulted during, during oh, that sure, day? sure, because nobody really understood. Even when people started talking and, and trying to explain what portfolio insurance was, people didn't really fully understand it. They didn't they didn't have faith that it could be controlled, and probably there was <laughs> some right. reason for right. for that doubt. So yeah, there was there was certainly panic, and and uh, the behavioral elements of markets, you know, certainly got pretty extreme in, in that in that time as well. Go back to the skew again. So in the period leading into that, were there folks graphing? option vol by strike could you sort of see that in the marketplace and was it just flat is that it what- was yeah it was basically flat wow there was a little bit of an element if you got to real extremes right you know you can't take an option at the time they traded in in eighths right and sixteenths so a certain option far enough away from the money they just couldn't take it lower than a sixteenth right <laughs> so it's implied volatility at one sixteenth or one eighth yes was probably higher. So there was a little bit of skew, but it was on the very, very extreme ends. But basically, curve was flat. And just a quick, funny little story. At the time, Fisher Black worked at Goldman Sachs. Okay, right. And I remember vividly having a conversation with him. I wasn't the only person. There were a couple of us sitting around. And we. this was after the crash. And we explained that the at-the-money options were, were at a, I'll bank up numbers, we at an 18 vol. And these out-of-the-money puts were now at a 26 vol. And he kind of got this quizzical look on his face. And, and basically, he just said in his matter of fact, well, that can't be. It's really <laughs> interesting. Just, it was just right. beyond him that the market would be that irrational, right. that it could make that kind of adjustment and stay. And of course, it's it's been that way ever since. And, and but- there were, so, so Black Shoals is 1973, right? Normal distribution. And you had some bear markets during the 70s, but they weren't violent risk-offs in some sense. They were- uh, No, not, not I like- I guess what I'm asking is- crashes like 87 or- Right. You know, like 08, parts of 08. Right. So the-, the, the But flat- you also didn't have options markets to really 
you couldn't test it as Observe much. Observe it, yeah. Right, right. Okay. So what's the aftermath of 87? So SKU becomes a part of the market. And were there periods in the years after 87, and let's just sort of say before the mid-90s, where people got, again, comfortable with downside? Did it sort of reflatten, or has this just no, been a permanent- there was always SKU. It's I always- mean, it, it, it varied like it does now. But we never, it never went back. So maybe walk us through the, the sort of earlier days of looking at option markets. They were far less efficient than they are now. The advent of electronic market access through trading systems was nothing relative to now. What were, with respect to your time at Goldman, what were some of the things that you were looking at in, let's just say, the early 90s? So post crash. What were some of the interesting opportunities that you can recall in terms of trying to capitalize on? So once again, quickly started at Goldman 82, was trading through to the crash, and then 88 quieted down quite a bit. In 1989, I went to Japan. So I spent from 89 to 92 in Japan. And I think the most interesting thing about that is now we think of these markets as, you know, you have a Nikkei, you have a Eurostox, you have an S&P, and obviously the S&P is more liquid and much deeper, bigger market. But people assume, and, and they're mostly correct, that the Nikkei is a pretty deep market and pretty liquid. And obviously back then it was, and it was being introduced. Index options started in Japan in at the very end of 1988, and sorry, at the very end of 1989 and then into the 90s. So I think the most interesting thing about that is now you're introducing the different ways of examining markets and thinking about things like skew and and the steepness of vol curves, and you're introducing them to new markets. In other words, okay, we're now going to trade mark we're now going to trade options on the Nikkei, and here's what the vol curve is going to look like because. That's the best we can estimate right. based on the historical volatility of the Nikkei versus the S&P. And what should the curve look like? Well, maybe the Nikkei curve should be higher than the S&P because it's a less developed market, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a time of making those adjustments kind of on the fly as you introduced these new instruments, futures and index options, and eventually individual options to different markets like the Nikkei, and then the Hong Kong markets and and others. Did you look at a lot at uh, the, the kind of early 90s convert markets in Japan? Those were yeah. said to be opportunity-rich. You had big, conver- huge convertible markets. You had a huge Japanese warrant market, mm. which had some of these elements of implied pricing in it, but wasn't the same as kind of index options because they were individual markets. They were longer dated instruments. You had typically corporate issued warrants on individual names in Japan that went out six, seven years to begin with. So Mm -hmm. obviously valued very differently from from index options and shorter dated options. So yeah, there there were a lot of things to play with, certainly in Japan. Mm -hmm. You know, early 90s towards, let's call it 97, things are pretty stable. I think that actually that was... A period, I want to say 95, there were a couple of sub-10 VIX prints. It yeah, was pretty there quiet. there were a couple of very quiet years in the yeah. mid to early to mid-90s. Yeah. And and it's clear that financialization was occurring, that the, the sort of market for products globally, the OTC product uh, was in the process of building up. And, and I think, you know, maybe it's hindsight, but we, we sort of start to see some of this movie as it's unfolding, right? The the product development, a lot of the OTC counterparty risk that, you know, tends to be complicit in some of the major uh, risk offs. So that's starting to build. Um, Were you, when did, when did you come back from Asia? 92. Oh, 92. Okay. So you were- 89 to 92. So, so maybe take us through the, the kind of 97, 98 period, because those obviously are, you know, you've got your, you know, Asian contagion, Thai bot crisis, uh, you can call it a number of things. And then, of course, you have this gigantic storm unwind of LTCM and the Russia default. What was that period like in terms of the the sorts of opportunities that might have emerged or, or the, the, the kinds of things, let's maybe rewind, the kinds of things that you think served to make that possible? How would you frame 
those those events? So I think from broadly speaking, let's take it from 87 to 97. You had the crash and then in the years after the crash, the markets became more developed. I'm talking about the derivatives markets, options, futures, et cetera. They became more developed, deeper, more liquid, many more clients over that decade from say 87 to 97 became active in the markets, both institutions writing premium, buying out of the money options, using futures to just kind of hedge and unhedge or to lever. So you had a lot more developed and much more customer-driven markets into the 90s than the 80s, which had been a lot more kind of principal and trading type counterparties. It became a lot more developed, a lot more liquid, very, very big, deep markets, and and continued that way up until 897 and 98. And that's when long-term capital, who was much more active in the fixed income markets, of course, but also had, people don't really recognize this, a lot of the biggest positions and some of the biggest losses that long-term capital incurred were in the equity derivatives markets. They had huge short volatility positions in the S&P, the Nikkei, and the Euro stocks, and the FTSE. I think it was 80 million of Vega is yeah. what? Huge, yeah. 80 million plus yeah. Yeah. of short Vega in the index options market. And I've I've often said since that if you just took away the equity derivatives losses, just said they didn't have any of those positions, they didn't have those losses, I think there's a chance that they might have been able to survive. That's how big they were yeah. and how concerned people were about those losses versus some of the other things that they had. Right. And I think that one was, I, I, I think the number is in late August, they lost $500 million in one day in equity options. So you know, do the math, 10 vol points yeah. on 80 million or eight vol points on, you yeah. know, so something around there. And I just remember there was a, that late August supposed to be real quiet. And I just remember looking at two year S&P vol, which you could see listed was 43 or so. And it just, it's interesting that you mentioned Fisher Black as sort of being shocked by this skew, like that's not supposed to exist. And then of course, Myron Scholes was a, a, a principal at long-term, probably also shocked at the dislocation what happened in equity options that was was so unique? Was it just the sizing of the trades was too big? Yeah, they were obviously huge. It's it's a it's sizes that uh, I, I think even now would shock and surprise people if they really think about what those kinds of numbers mean. And the market they got a little too big, not a little. They got too big for those markets. And when things started to to come undone for them. I think there was certainly some element of people front running against them just in general terms. They didn't know exactly what they had, but they knew that that, that it would have to come off in some sense. So the markets got even wider and more more extended. Now, th- this is not unusual. The same thing has happened the same thing happened in 2015-2016 when a lot of the troubles hit Asia. The same thing happened obviously in 08. So and people might say that some of the same thing just happened, uh, you know, six weeks ago in December, in a much, yeah. much smaller frame. Yeah, and so, so it happens, and it happens every. It seems to happen every, either four to five years or every eight to ten years. It's sort of this paradox where it would seem. You tell me if, what your reaction to this statement is. That the best time to sell vol is after it's had an enormous spike. In some ways, it's yeah. also the hardest time to sell it. Yeah. You, well, you never know how big that spike's going to be when it's happening. Volatility in in 98, S&P vol roughly from the summer that you're talking about into the event probably went from 20 to 36, talking about kind of one to two year vol. And they had two to three year positions they had had three to four year positions, which had now decayed down to where they were now one to three year positions across all their different books. And and those, call it two year vol, went from say 20 to 35, 36. So it looks like a great sale at 30 when it's gone from 20 to 30. 
in hindsight, obviously that wasn't the best spot to get in, but so it's always hard to time that. Uh, we'll learn more about the, the the founding and the philosophy behind JD Capital. Before you founded the firm, we had a tech bubble, which was a very interesting period for Vol. It was the dawn of the long Vol hedge fund, which Vol was almost cheap for a couple of years. What was your experience through that that period? Yeah, I think probably the most pertinent thing that, that you're addressing there is you had these huge moves in single names, internet, web, biotechs. You had you know names moving in the course of a few weeks, hundreds of percent, and certainly tens of percents easily. Sure. And some of those stocks did round trips where they went from, you know, two to 80 to two, and some of them survived and, and went on. But the volatility, especially on kind of the NASDAQ type names was was extreme. And I don't think people immediately adjusted to that. So as you say, there were a lot of a lot of options players. Some of them were volatility specialists, but many of them weren't. Many of them were just long short guys or technology long short guys who happened to realize that these options were in many cases underpriced to what the prospects of those particular companies could do and what's the what's the process of the market realizing that holy cow this is brand new stuff that whereas you've got some semblance of a distribution in your head and you got to almost tear it up especially to the upside Right, that was what seems to be so unique. Yeah, I mean, Cisco went from over a certain period, it went from five to eighty, and then it suddenly it was forty again. Almost any option you traded in Cisco for about a year probably was cheap, given what it could do and what it indeed did. I'm not sure how it kind of became fully understood. It it just took a couple of years of that kind of trading. To understand what you're talking about, that they're actually in certainly in single names can be skew on the upside, and you still see that in the market. That was probably a secondary adjustment. If index options skew came into the market after '87, I think probably a lot of other kinds of skew, especially on the upside in single names, came in after the after a lot of the tech moves of '98 to 2001. Mm-hmm. So tell us about uh, the the founding of of JD Capital Management. What was uh, your motivating sort of risk principle or or investment principle in, in in founding the firm? Right. So I had been at Goldman from eighty two to two thousand and one. The last couple of years had been unwinding long term capital. I was seconded away from Goldman and sent up to to help unwind long term capital with a small committee that we. Uh, I spent 15 months there. And what I saw there was interesting in a lot of different ways. They obviously had made a lot of mistakes, but they also had a lot of things that they did very well and had set up very well in terms of the way you think about a hedge fund and and manage a hedge fund. So I tried to take as much of the good that I could. And I knew it was about time for, for me to leave and do something else. And so I left Goldman in 01 to start JD Capital, basically with a huge focus on the equity derivatives and 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 options markets. We did other things early on, but that was always the focus, was uh, primarily the equity derivatives. We do a little bit of other markets now, but the primary focus was on trading equity derivatives, equity volatility from a long-short perspective. So with no bias toward long or short, trying to stay fairly neutral to that because one of the things I learned from all these different episodes, whether it was the crash in 87 or bearings in 95 or the long-term capital thing was certainly mistakes can be made on the short side, but there were certainly episodes where people overpaid a lot for options too. So we try to stay very neutral to the overall volatility environment. So when we when you use the term overpaying for options, we, we always, certainly in hindsight, can always say definitively, you overpaid for that, right? <laughs> the experience of, let's say, the, the motion of the underlying was insufficient relative to what you paid for it. But when you say it on a sort of going in basis, what, what are the, 
the risks that someone overpays for an option? Do you think of that as you're buying something for which there's a structural shortage of it, and so you're you're sort of buying something that the market's not able to supply at a good price. So, you know, long dated, deep out of the money puts in the S&P don't seem like the cheapest thing around. Maybe they turn out to be, but they don't seem like it. And you could argue the market's just not in a good spot to provide those. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, back to your, you know, your convert days, you might say, well, you got a company selling vol. It's not as, it's a little bit of a better natural supplier. So maybe there's a structural cheapness there. How do you, when you think about value in vol, what are some of the things that go into your process? I think there's two obvious ways to focus on it. There's, you can get the implied wrong. So you can buy something at a 16 vol and very quickly because the market quiets down or because some catalyst that you thought existed uh, is removed. And suddenly that thing that you own at 16 vol can be trading at 13 vol and you instantaneously lose that three vol of value. And the other thing that can happen, of course, is you can just lose it in decay. So you can buy something at 16 vol and you can own it for the next six months as it trades along and realizes 10 vol. And maybe the implied doesn't change right away, but you're still losing that difference between what you paid, the 16 vol, and where it's realizing at 10 or 11 or whatever. And it may take you a longer time to realize that realize that loss, but it's it's a loss nonetheless. So there's the implied and then there's the realized. And both of them can be painful. Some markets usually adjust more one way than the other. Index options behave a little differently from individuals, some commodity markets behave differently, but but that's really I think the primary focus is one of those two things could hurt you. So you you set up JD at the kind of tail end of the internet bubble. Vol was probably high, but coming down. And then we had this period of like the ice age of vol. It was 2004, five, six. Turns out to be catalyzing something of gigantic proportion. Yeah. But but what was that period like? That the sort of golden years of big time credit creation and sort of how did you guys think about relative value there? Where, where did you see opportunity? So one of the biggest things that I always stress to people when either prospective investors, when they come in to talk to us, or you know, if I'm talking to someone about these markets and or the way we run things, is that it really requires an incredible amount of patience and discipline because you are going to have, and sometimes they're very long, you're going to have periods where you just can't force things. And the period you're talking about 03, 04, into 05, 06 even, there were literally many months on end when volatility just was not there. And almost any option you bought, it seems like you lost money on. And you just can't force things. So we had a couple of years in those periods where we were flat or happy to scratch out and make a percent or two. And you just have to have to do that and not get caught in either liquid things or force things too much. You can't oversell things just because it's comfortable and the markets are very quiet. Because obviously, when you do that, that's exactly when they're going to blow up in the other direction. So sizing and patience, especially in these really, really quiet periods, is I think that's been one of our biggest comparative advantages is that we're able to do that very well and and stay out of trouble in in those kinds of times. During that that period, one of the things I think that w- was occurring was the European structured product market was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and you had French banks with significant inventories of correlation exposure that they loved but just was so sizable that they found a way to recycle it through markets. And so this was the, I'm recalling the dawn of, you know, variance to variance type dispersion trades. Did you, was there opportunity there from your perspective? Was there stuff to do at a price that was really interesting because there was maybe a non-economic consumer of the original risk at that time? So this is something that we still do today. And uh, you're you're correct in that I think it kind of started in the the mid two thousand years, from 
after 2002, so call it from 2003 until the the crisis of 08. And actually through then, there were still a lot of uh, banks and brokers that were looking to to lay off things in one one way or another. They would get some sort of exposure either from a structured product or from just client flows of some kind, whether it's tail risk funds who got them short something or some other institutional flow of some kind. We're talking strictly about the equity markets. Other similar things happen in in the fixed income markets and the currency markets. But so we started to look more and more at the kinds of hedging flows and layoff flows that the dealers got and showed to us starting back then. And it's something we still do today. But that also, I think, is something that you just need to be very conscious of not getting too concentrated, even if something looks very attractive, because if they have a lot of it, there's a reason why they have a lot of it. And and it can take a long time and, and be very painful if you get started too early, even in some sort of a relationship or some sort of volatility spread that looks very attractive. People have learned that lesson again recently in the Euro stocks versus the S&P, where everybody and their brother started buying Euro stocks vol about a year ago when it looked very cheap versus the S&P. And it's been a very, very painful thing for the last you know, 12 to 18 months. So that is something that we do, but we don't we try to be very conscious about what those flows look like and how concentrated they are and and how crowded some of those kinds of exposures are getting but they can be they can be interesting and and sometimes when things get stressed either for the banks or the brokers or other participants in the market it it certainly does give us opportunities it did in 2015-16 it did again around the feb uh, VIX crisis of last year, 2018. And there have been other periods. Correlation comes to mind in August of 2011, which got very, very stressed back then. And part of that was due to to dealers and their reaction to the, to the US. I think the products themselves, and this is maybe it's a little bit of the crash and some elements of long-term, it's just whether it's positioning or reaction functions to positioning. The I'm thinking back to the the low in the VIX was ironically was January of 07, you know, for the pre-crisis low, maybe December 06, January 07. And what was even more fascinating the VIX, it's obviously very short dated, but two-year S&P vol got down at like 12 and a half. And to me, that was very shocking. Now, I was not at a French bank, but what I came to understand was that they, a lot of the positioning that the French derivatives trader, who is very mathy and and doesn't really have a view, he's just hedging. But the behavior of some of the complex instruments that they have, were getting them longer and longer vol as vol went lower. People call it negative vol convexity. I think that's fascinating. You know, it's it, it, it's sort of the elephant in the room is the trade itself. It's sort of forcing behavior. And sometimes you see that in those Hiradashi markets as well. How does how do you position against that? Is that just trying to understand the the set of products out there and the way in which sort of people have to react? And, and Yeah, I think it's an extremely difficult thing to handicap because you have two countervailing forces. You have the market, which, as, we, as we've discussed, generally into equity index markets crash down and march up. They, they tend to have more volatility on the downside. And then when they're doing well, you have a lot of, you know, very, very quiet, small up days in bull markets. On the other hand, a lot of these products, which the banks have sold, structured notes, auto callables, oridashis, you know, all, all the different names that, that people use for them, worst of, best of, all these things, a lot of them have a tendency to get a bank, as you put it, as you said, sometimes longer vol on the way down. So they may be sellers of vol, even though at the time you would think volatility would be going up. So which is going to be the dominant factor? Is the market and its behavior to skew going to be more important? 
Or is the structured product market, in fact, big enough to actually have a more important effect on implieds in a particular instrument or a particular maturity, the euro stocks, for example? I don't have the answer to that. And and I guess all, all I can say is that the answer is not always the same. And, and understanding which markets, which of those two things, and maybe some other factors, tail risk funds behavior, for example, what correlation acts like, all those things are, you know, go into the soup of trying to figure out how implieds and options are, are going to behave in, in different uh, circumstances. And, and that's not an easy, thankfully for us, that's not an easy thing to do is to understand and handicap all those different factors. So I'm going to circle back to that because present day, there is quite a bit of narrative or sell-side attribution to these, maybe their levels or the sort of systematic buying and selling that comes either as a function of realized vol, as a function of price levels of the vol control universe and vol targeting universe. So I want to circle back to that, but let's just through the crisis, what did you observe? What was the, for you, you know, sort of 40 to 45 was kind of the high in the VIX in 2002, was the high in the VIX in 1998 in, two, in you know, in the tech bubble, got about 38 or so, but we sort of got to something that we hadn't seen before. What was that period like for, for you guys at JD Capital? So I guess the VIX hit 80 or something yeah. on, a, on a very short-term basis. What happens in in those kinds of periods is I think people have an impression of vol funds generally that they're constantly trying to just pick pick vol. And if it's going 80, they, they wanted to own it at 60 because they wanted to make it from 60 to 80. And when it goes to 80, they certainly want to sell it because they want to get that from move from 75 down to 40. And we just don't do that. We certainly have that as a bet as a framework and as a backdrop to other things we're looking at. But what we're really what we really specialize on doing is in that environment, we want to try and buy something and sell something else against it where we think that that particular relationship is out of whack. And those kinds of anomalies and those kinds of mismatches happen more when VIX is, you know, on its way from 40 to 60 just because people panic and they there are more dislocations in maturities of the same instrument there are more strange behaviors of skew as we've discussed supply demand of particular instruments or particular indexes or individual options can provide opportunity to trade index against individuals or one index against another and that's that's just what we do is is not so much try to handicap and guess whether the vol is going up or down, but instead try to find those spreads and those relationships and those those correlation bets and and try to take advantage of those in the in those times, either by putting them on during that time or by taking off something that we may have put on right. when things were quieter. Anything during that period, call it 07 to 09, just from a dislocation standpoint that is especially memorable there were certainly some correlation some really really correlate interesting correlation behaviors for example when you had all the fear about the banks the xlf the etf on the on the financials the implied on the xlf got so high that uh, you were able to set up dispersion trades where we bought options on Citibank and JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and some of the other banks and sold index options on the XLF at implieds that were you know well into the 90%. Now, at the time it was realizing about yeah. 95% <laughs> right. implied correlation. So you could say that's where it should have been, but it wasn't going to continue that way. And in fact, if you were able to set it up at implied correlations of of a 95, you have very, very little downside, obviously. It can't realize more than 100. 
And in fact, pretty quickly, in some cases, it came back and the implied was back down to 80, which is still, you know, it's exorbitantly high and much higher than it is now. But at the time, you know, being able to set it up at 95 and buy it in at 80 was was a pretty good trade in, in that kind of instrument. And there were there were other examples like that. So let's fast forward to, to today a little bit. One of the things you and I have talked about over the years is just the the risk-bearing function of the street, the, the, the intermediation or the price discovery process of transferring convexity risk from one counterparty to another. And that whether it's the scars of 08 or some maybe it's post-crisis regulation regime, that there was a certain amount of impairment for the sell side's ability to bear downside risk. And maybe there's some other areas, even kind of financing trades that they were less able to do. Can you just give us a big picture on on how you think about that, what you've observed over time in terms of just how when big prints, big transfers of risk, how they occur and maybe some of the changes that have that you've seen uh, over time? So going way back historically, as I as we said a little bit, the markets became, the derivatives markets became much more client-driven, a lot of big institutions and others in, say, the 90s into the 2000s. What that meant was that in many cases when those institutions or or big hedge funds or pension funds wanted to trade in options or futures or derivatives of some kind, they would often go to a bank and the bank would end up with some sort of exposure. And in many cases, the banks, and I did this when I was running a lot of Goldman's risk in the equities division, would keep that risk because they had the risk appetite, they had the capital, you know, we didn't have any of the the Dodd-Frank issues that we that came about after 08. So a lot of the banks would keep and hold a lot of the risks that they got in the 90s and in the early 2000s. After 08, that obviously changed. The banks got rid of prop desks. They just couldn't hold the same amount of risk. And that started in 09 and 2010, but it really, really picked up in 2014. Dodd-Frank was really kicking in. Basel was kicking in in Europe. And so we really saw a very big change in terms of the the risks on the derivative side, especially in equities, that the banks were able to hold starting in 2014. And so a lot of the a lot of the structured product business that would would lend correlation risk or volatility risks that the banks would keep, we started to see more of shown to us as a hedge fund. And frankly, there aren't there just aren't that many hedge funds that have some combination of enough capital, enough expertise, and and enough willingness to trade both internationally, uh, over the counter because of the counterparty risk, longer dated because some of the risks that the banks and the brokers get are not six months risks; they tend to be two year, three year, five year type positions. So there just aren't a lot of places for banks to lay off that risk. So from 2014 to still today, here in 2019, that's still an area where we do see a lot of flow from the, from the banks. So let's we'll fast forward to 2017, a tail risk of low vol in a lot of ways, six and a half or so realized in the S&P. VIX averaged 11, but was a gigantic premium to realize. You had, I would say, a five-ish sharp ratio for something like the XIV. We obviously know what happened in, in early 2018. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the XIV debacle or event. And if you draw, if you look at a graph of uh, XIV and VXX, they both wound up at basically zero, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny. What, what do you, what did you see in, in 2017 in terms of, of XIV? What was that period leading into you know, the, the kind of January period of 2018, a year ago, what was that like? And, and the, the implosion, give us some, some color on what you guys were yeah. doing in there. So when people think about volatility and volatility markets and events, what comes to mind typically is the big crashes like 87 and 08 and 2015, 16, more in Asia. They don't think about 2017, but in many ways, 2017 was a 
more anomalous, more strange event in volatility markets than any of those crashes that you could have, you know, 14, 16 months with the low volatility that we had from the very end of 16 into 17 and and January of 18 was pretty extraordinary. Do you have a working theory on the why of it? Because I get low vol, but that was just motionlessness. Yeah. yeah. It was amazing. It, it was the classic march up in very, very small steps. Yeah. I, I think it was a combination of Fed put comfort, certainly fundamental fundamentals were strong and solid and quiet in the markets from uh, earnings, et cetera, buybacks. Was option selling itself a part and, of it. And then, yeah, systematic selling had become a, more of a self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of institutions who had started selling one-month variants and one-month vol, and it obviously worked for a long time for people. Right, right. Yeah, all, all of those. I don't think there's one thing. Just like in many cases, the crashes never have one answer right. or one explanation. I think the vol crash of 2017, you really can't say it was just one thing either. It was a combination of all those. From your standpoint, the XIV and being able to, it's a lit product. You can, whereas long-term, in hindsight, you know that it's 80 million of Vega, but you probably knew they were big along the way, but you didn't necessarily, there's no reporting of these positions, right? They're all OTC. XIV is a little different. Yeah. So how did you guys think about that and, and how did you follow it? Well, I, I'd like to I'd like to be able to say we we uh, saw it coming and and you know knew it was an accident waiting to happen. That certainly isn't the case. I think we knew we didn't want to get caught in that. In other words, this was a time when that patience of not selling vol just because, as you put it earlier, VIX is eleven and it's realizing six. You know that's not that may seem like a good trade in the short run, but uh, that's certainly an accident waiting to happen, but we didn't, so we didn't have big positions in either direction of that kind of directional volatility trade. I think we did want to avoid what happened in February. So we, we certainly weren't big sellers of all, even though it, it seemed comfortable there for a long time, but we also didn't, didn't pay for it. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of bystanders. I think that's a classic case of Let's just observe and stay out of the way. And when something happens, we'll try and capitalize because we don't have any we don't have any trouble to dig ourselves out of. Right, right. We can go into it with using the old TV show Clear Eyes and Clear Heart and whatever that saying is. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's circle back to where we started, which is and, and want to get your kind of closing thoughts on this, which is we, we were talking about portfolio insurance, and I think you you framed it really well, just a gigantic stop-out strategy. Yeah. And there is some comparison uh, in current markets to, to that, which is uh, whether it's trend following or this whole class of uh, strategies called vol control. Risk parity. Risk yeah. parity, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think kind of driving in the rearview mirror a little bit. We're sizing our portfolio based on the trailing day of realized. And, and if our trading decision is based on something that's very mathematical, and if those strategies are big enough, then they can create lurches lower and higher in the market. And there's a lot of attribution of this stuff from the sell side. What do you, what's your view on, on how important it is? And can we truly know, or are we just, are we kind of guessing? Uh, I, I'm probably at risk of sounding a little extreme on this, but I think the idea that you would change your allocation so dramatically based on a relatively short measure of volatility in the market is nonsense. I just think it's one of the silliest big strategies that institutions have taken on that I can remember. It, it just, just seems like, it seems silly. Now, I guess people would say it's worked and probably you could come up with some back test that would tell me that it's worked. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it's it's nonsense for a large institution to manage billions and billions of dollars this way is just silly. So I know that in large part what you're doing is looking for relative value. We're, we're coming off this incredibly low 2017 vol period. 18, we obviously had you know, two pretty significant bursts, right? The early February, which was an event, and then the fourth quarter, which was a lot of things, and it was more sustainable in a lot of ways. Any views on uh, no crystal ball, not asking for you to predict the future, but are we in this sort of period of adjustment where the, the sort of Fed is lifting the guardrails a little bit? It's letting the market price discover a little bit more on its own. What, what, what do you see for, for 2019? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it exactly that way because that makes it sound like they're choosing to let the market decide on its own. And I think they're just choosing to try to do what they think is appropriate given their mandate. And whatever that means to the market, they're they're letting the market go on about its way. So I wouldn't put it exactly as them letting the market decide. They're just doing what they need to do and, and kind of ignore it, not, not, not really paying attention to the market, kind of ignoring it. And it'll do what's, what it's going to do. I think there are plenty of catalysts for volatility in either direction. You know, whether it's Trump or China or Brexit or oil, there were the Fed getting it wrong in some fashion. All any or all of these could provide anywhere from short bursts to longer periods of more sustained volatility. I don't know which, if any of those, are going to come to us in 2019. I'd be really shocked if we go back to the 2017 quiet anytime soon. But I also, you know, don't have any particular strong view that we'll be at 25 in VIX uh, before we'll be necessarily at 13 or 14. Well, we'll leave it there, Dave. I thank you very much for your time. It was a, a great discussion. Thanks for being a guest. Okay, my pleasure. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. (laughs) 